Welcome back to Breadcast. I am Aaron Weiss, and today we are going to be hearing from Kyle Marshall. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed the podcast that we put out this summer, and we wanted to keep it up. So every week we are going to be posting the stories from the previous week's DBS. Hope you enjoy. I would like to think that I'm a person with a little bit of virtue. Now, not too much. I'm not claiming to be Mother Teresa or anything like that. Uh, but I try to make at least like pretty good, maybe mediocre decisions most of the time. Um, but what I will say without a shadow of a doubt, the virtue that I know that I do not have and I would like to have but have never had is the virtue of patience. I'm not a patient person at all. If you've ever been in the car with me and you've been stuck behind a, a red light or stuck in traffic or behind a slow car, that uh, you have seen this side of me. It's not pretty. I'm not um, proud of it. I, even today, uh, my son is in virtual preschool. He's a three-year-old. Uh, and uh, it is very, very hard for someone like me who has no patience when the, the teacher's video isn't working. And I think I could fix it, but I don't want to come in and, and get in the way. Um, and I never realized just how impatient I am until my wedding day, or at least how impatient I obviously am to everyone else. <laughs> uh, now, that might sound strange, because why would you be impatient on your wedding day? Well, I wasn't actually being impatient. It was, it was actually what I was told at my wedding day, uh, at least my rehearsal dinner. If you've ever been to an American wedding that you know customary for an American wedding is for the uh, husband and wife that are getting married, the bride and the groom, their best friends or their parents or their brother or sister, whoever they choose, is their maid of honor and their best man. And those two people are uh, usually are asked to give some sort of a speech. Uh, and sometimes they're sweet and sappy. Sometimes they're funny. Sometimes they're terrible. I've sat through a few really, really bad ones in my life. Now, at our wedding, my best friend, Bradley, uh, gave our speech for, for me. And uh, in his speech, he talked about just how impatient I am, which was unexpected and maybe sounds like a strange thing to belong in a best man's speech, but it'll make sense when you hear it. Uh, I want to read a little bit of the speech that he gave. He sent it to me. Weirdly enough, he still had it on his computer seven years later. Uh, now, his speech begins by talking about how he can predict uh, things that I would do or say, uh, even if I didn't believe him, and that he was always right. And then he writes, for example... When Kyle and Alicia first started dating, it had been about two weeks, I think, and Kyle and I were talking about how things were going and stuff. And things were going well, of course, and I remember telling him, dude, I bet within a month you guys tell each other that you love each other. He was like, this is me. He was like, no, no way, dude, not gonna happen. And of course, I think it was two weeks after that, maybe three, and we were hanging out and talking, and I jokingly asked if the L word had come up and Kyle got that stupid Kyle grin on his face that he does and he says uh yeah it just sort of happened <laughs> and of course I had to say I told you so then you know they're in love and dating and months pass and things are going well and Kyle's going down to West Point all the time because Alicia was living down there still in school or she was coming up here all the time and things are getting like really serious and he and I start talking about if he thinks that he could marry her. And he was like, dude, I really think I'm going to marry her. And so we start talking about when he might propose. And at first he's all 
Definitely not until she's graduated from college because I'm not going to marry a, a someone or at least propose to someone that's still in college. So maybe like, you know, November, I don't know, something like that. And he says, I know, I, I know you're not going to wait that long. There's no way you're going to wait that long. Uh, and then, of course, like a month later, he started saying, well, maybe I'll ask her in like early April because she's basically going to be graduated at that point. She's not even really taking anything seriously. No one is at that point. Uh, and I think it'll be good. And then in like February, Kyle comes to me and says, hey, I got a ring and I think I'm proposing in two weeks. <laughs> Again, I have to say, dude, you know that I called that right. And he insists, well, I already bought the ring. What's the point in waiting? So they got engaged, Bradley goes on, and he starts talking about when they might get married. And I'm sure you guys know, he says, uh, uh, where this is going, but uh, he starts off saying, we're thinking like late November getting married now. And again, I just know that there's no way Kyle's not gonna make this happen sooner. And so I tell him that, and the dude just never learns that I'm dead on with all this stuff. So then a little while later, he tells me that, he, that they booked a place for the reception. And I was like, okay, cool. When is it? October, November? And he says, uh, September 21st. <laughs> and Bradley says, are you serious? And, I, and then my response apparently was, uh, well, you know, it's late September. So that's basically October. You know, that's just right around the corner from November. So I was, I was, I was right. You were wrong. Which is just so perfectly me, he says. Now, Bradley wraps up the speech, some really sweet things about us and how... Uh, how much he loves our relationship, and I'm not gonna share all that because it's too sappy, uh, but he was right, I'm impatient. And uh, if we continued the story forward, after we got married, Alicia and I had a conversation about when we wanted to have a kid. We knew we wanted to have children, and we decided that five years was a good time frame. We both sat down, we're like, five years, I think that'll be good. We'll have our life together, and maybe we'll have a little bit more money than we have right now, and so we'll do that. Well, uh, typical me, uh, it was less than two years when I brought up to Alicia uh, that I think I'm ready to have a kid, which freaked her out because she was on the five-year plan, but we uh, decided on having a child. And, and now if you've been around Brad, you've probably seen our, our son Levi, which he is definitely a product of my impatience. <laughs> uh, and I say all that uh, because the story that we're going to talk about tonight uh, is a story about two people who are very much unlike me, and they are very patient people. They wait their whole life hoping for something uh, that they find here in this story. If you've ever been to DBS, uh, you know that we like to share stories here on Thursday nights. Typically, we do them in this room full of people, but right now we're doing that over Zoom uh, because of the pandemic. But we still want to share stories. Uh, and we like to share stories about Jesus because we think Jesus is amazing. We say every week, we love Jesus, but you don't have to, to be here. But we still want to talk about Jesus on Thursday nights and why he matters to us. And our story tonight, is, uh, is, it involves Jesus, but it involves these two sort of unlikely figures that enter into the Jesus story for just a moment, and then they disappear for the rest of the Jesus story. Now, uh, if you are unlike me and that sort of a Bible nerd that I am, you've probably never even heard of these people, maybe in passing at Christmas. Uh, but I think of these two people similarly to the type of people that maybe, you maybe have a story like this where you're out and about, maybe you're getting groceries, you're out just in public and you meet a stranger and something weird happens and uh, that, that interaction sticks with you. You don't know their name. Uh, you'll never see them again, but even to this day, you can remember that story. That's the kind of story that we're talking about here today. Um, and if you uh, want to read the story, it's in uh, the Gospel of Luke, which is one of the four stories about Jesus's life. 
uh, and it's in chapter 2. Now Jesus is a baby, and his parents are taking him to Jerusalem, which is the capital city where the temple is, and they're taking him to have him dedicated as a baby. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to anything like this, like a baby dedication or a christening. Uh, I was a children's pastor for nine years. I can tell you without, um, without doubt that baby dedications are, are pretty boring and uh, kind of all for the parents, but also babies are cute, so that makes up for it. And so uh, Mary and Joseph are, are bringing Jesus in and, uh, and going to have him dedicated at the temple. And then as they go into the temple, Luke tells us they meet this man named Simeon, who Luke describes as a righteous and devout man who was waiting for, quote, the consolation of Israel. Now I'll get into what that means in a minute, because that's kind of a confusing phrase. But Luke says he meets baby Jesus in the temple courts, and uh, in a scene I, I don't think is dissimilar to Rafiki and Lion King holding up baby Simba, he grabs the baby and he holds him high and he begins to praise God, saying, God, you kept your promises. My eyes have seen your salvation, a light to the world, and a glory to the people Israel. Kind of weird, right? A strange thing to happen. Uh, when my son was little uh, and a cute little baby, people always wanted, strangers always wanted to walk up to us and you know, grab his hair or hold him or kiss him or hug him, which is kind of strange. Uh, if you've ever uh, been around babies, you just, it's kind of weird. You don't know that person, and so that happens all the time. But I can tell you, no one ever grabbed my son and held him high and said, my eyes have seen your salvation. That's a strange interaction. And I imagine it was, it was odd for Mary and Joseph. And we'll get into more of that in a second, but uh, I want to continue the story on because as soon as this, is, this interaction is finished, another character, a woman named Anna, walks into the story. Now Anna, Luke tells us, was, was elderly. She was about 80 years old. And she was a widow. Uh, and she apparently was a very righteous person, very devout person. She was in the temple every single day uh, praying and, and praising God. Uh, I imagine Anna is the type of grandma that maybe uh, you've had, or at least you know, that's super uh, religious and always praying for you and always asking you about your soul, that sort of figure. That is Anna in the story. Well, Anna walks in and to the room where Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus are, and just like Simeon, she begins to talk about how God is doing something through this baby, and how salvation would be coming through this baby Jesus. Now, again, I imagine Mary and Joseph are pretty troubled by this, or at least confused. However, if you've ever heard the Christmas story, this is not the first sort of weird interaction that Mary and Joseph have had already with strangers. There's the Wiseman story, there's the shepherd story, so maybe they're just getting used to it, I don't know. But we know that this story sticks around in Mary's memory because uh, Luke was not there physically when this happened. Most, most scholars think Luke probably interviewed Mary at the end of her life to hear all of these amazing stories about Jesus. And this story stood out years and maybe decades later as something really important to her. So what's up with these two weird um, interactions, uh, Simeon and Anna with this baby Jesus, and why am I telling you this story? tonight. Why do I find it really interesting? Well, to get there, I want to build a little bit of backstory here, because Luke doesn't give us a whole lot. We know that, that Anna is a widow, and uh, we know a little bit of what, what that would have been like, and that she's elderly, but we don't really get anything about Simeon. We can assume he's older, but we don't know for sure. But I know a little bit about the history of this period, and I want to kind of fill in the gaps about maybe what Simeon and Anna's life uh, were like leading up to this moment. 
So if Anna is 80 years old, we know that she would have lived through the end of what historians call the Hasmonean dynasty, which was the last period in which Israel was a free nation um, and would be the last period that Israel would be a free nation until the modern day today. And uh, that period was amazing. Uh, it was wonderful. They were not living under the, the captivity of a, of a foreign nation, yet that all came to an end about 60 years before this story when uh, the conqueror Pompey came in and conquered the city and, and uh, forced everyone back into uh, Roman rule. And with Roman rule came taxes and all of this stuff that no one wanted to be a part of. And I'm sure she remembers the good old days before the Romans showed up and everything changed. She probably had friends and relatives who wanted to fight back and maybe lost their lives in that battle when she was a young girl. And as she moved on into adulthood, and probably Simeon as well, they remember the, someone you've probably heard of, Julius Caesar, the conqueror, who uh, was brutal and conquered so much of this world. And maybe more and more of their friends wanted to fight back, and they, they laid in bed. I imagine Anna or Simeon laying in bed worrying about what would happen if they fought back, um, wanting to believe that God had not abandoned them, but also is terrified of this sort of a military might, because stories were known widely about Julius Caesar and the way that he treated any sort of rebellion. They live through the reign of King Herod, a figure that shows up in uh, the New Testament. Now I say King Herod because he wasn't really a king. He, he was sort of an egomaniac governor who thought uh, he was more important than his own position allowed, but he named himself king and uh, king of the Jews, which he wasn't Jewish, which was an offensive thing to do. And he taxed everyone so much that, ever, that the, the poor were crying out for help because they were struggling under the rule. He uh, mistreated the religious leaders. He forced uh, sacrifices of pigs to happen inside the temple, which is not kosher and not allowed. And the religious leaders of the day hated him, but there's not much that they could do. And I'm sure that Simeon and Anna remember uh, all of this and have lived through all of this and the whole time waiting for God to do something about it. Because 400 years before all of this, God had last spoke through the prophets and had promised a savior. He had promised someone would come and free them from the bondage. God was coming to fix things, to fix the brokenness in the world. And generations and generations had passed and people had held on hope and probably many had given up hope about God's coming. And the longer that lasted, more I imagine more and more people were giving up hope that God was going to do something. And yet here we have Anna and Simeon at the end of their life, waiting, hoping that God would do something, that God had not abandoned them. Which brings us back to the story where in the face of this baby boy, Jesus, they see their hopes realized. The hope that they had had their whole life, that they'd waited for their whole life, was finally here. Now we don't know how they knew that baby Jesus was the answer. All that Luke tells us is that God revealed it to him with the Spirit. But we know that both of these figures have this momentary interaction with Jesus and they walk away convinced that this is the answer, that Jesus would be the hope that they'd all waited for, that God had finally spoken. Now, Jesus doesn't turn out to be the sort of political savior that I imagine many of Anna's and Simeon's uh, friends and, um, and peers wanted. As we know in history, Jerusalem, about 60 years after this, is, is, is destroyed and, and conquered, and Rome uh, devastates the whole thing. 
and they would never be a nation again like that until um, the 20th century. However, I believe that Simeon and Anna saw something different in Jesus. They didn't see a political savior. They saw a savior that was coming to fix the brokenness in the whole world. They saw in Jesus that God was going to redeem and restore all of this, not just, not just the city, not just the people, but the whole world. A hope that is brighter, a brighter light than any darkness that the world has ever known. Now, as you all know, the last five months or so have been pretty hard for everyone. Um, I'm pretty sure we've all experienced grief and loss and pain and suffering, maybe large, maybe small. There's so much has happened. I mean, it feels like a lifetime uh, since March, right? Uh, now, going back to March, if I can remember that far back, uh, I, Alicia and I were getting ready to leave the country to go to England, where I spent a year of my life when I was in my early 20s helping start a campus ministry. And we were so excited because this was a trip that Alicia had never been to Europe, and I was getting to go back and see friends that I hadn't seen in probably 10 years, getting to show around all of this stuff that I'd seen, and I was so excited about it. And I remember, you know, the weeks or week or two leading into this, uh, I remember hearing stories about COVID. And I remember sort of laughing about it, being like, it's not that big a deal. It's probably like Ebola last time where everyone freaked out. It's not that big a deal. Um, and then as we got closer, starting getting a little more nervous. And I started Googling and everything said, it's fine. It's safe. As long as you're not going to China or Italy, you'll be fine. And so we leave, um, expecting to have a 10-day trip and then to come back. Uh, and we're going to finish out the semester with you all here at Emory. And then things changed because about halfway through this trip, uh, it became really apparent that this is a bigger deal than we all realized. We wake up one morning, it was a Thursday before we were leaving the, that Saturday. Uh, we wake up that morning uh, to news that uh, there was a travel ban announced for all of Europe. And, uh, and the way that the news came out, there was this period of time where people didn't know if we were going to get home. And that was all while we were sleeping because of the time difference. And so we wake up to like 20 texts, probably of people saying, you need to get home now. You're going to get stuck there. Uh, we have a son who was a grandparents, and so we were worried about that. So we start, I get on the phone with Delta trying to figure it out, and I wait on hold for hours until I give up because it's clearly, there's so many people. I feel like all of Europe was going through the same sort of thing that, that we were. Um, and luckily, uh, the travel ban wasn't for citizens, and at that time, the UK was not a part of it. And so we, we, we came to the conclusion pretty quickly that I think we can get home. We just got to stay safe and not get sick. I was worried about getting sick and not being allowed on the plane and what would happen if we got quarantined in England for another 30 days. What about our son? All of that, right? At the same time, same day, uh, we find out that Emory is canceling classes in person for the rest of the semester. And we're kind of worried. We're like, what does that mean? How do campus ministers do campus ministry without people on campus? You know, that's, we've never done that before. We were worried about seeing our students again, especially our seniors, our seniors that we were worried we might not ever see again. All of that hit. I remember Alicia and I going to a, a pub in England because that's pretty much everywhere in England is, is British pubs and, and sitting by a fire and just talking about what do we do and trying to figure out everything um, by, or thousands of miles away from home. And so we finished out the trip uh, and it was a good trip. We had a great time. We got to go to Oxford and it was beautiful. But you know, even already there's this underlying anxiety about what, what was coming and are we gonna be allowed to get on the plane and all of that. 
And we got on the plane and we landed that Sunday or Saturday, late that Saturday night in Atlanta at Hartsville Jackson. And uh, we made it home. We didn't get sick. Um, and uh, we were able to come home to our son and our goofy dog. And in a lot of ways, that scariness was over. But then the sort of 2020 happened, the pandemic sort of life that we all lived, this anxiety, this fear, the unknown, what's going to happen, uh, social distancing, quarantining, all of that, and, um, and unsure about everything. And I'll tell you, the last six months or five months uh, since we've landed have been really hard, personally, um, and I'm sure for all of us. Um, I've been through real stuff, some of the most difficult stuff that I've faced in my last 34 years on this planet. I've grieved over unexpected loss. I've lied awake at night at, for hours worried about uh, money and worried about job losses of, um, you know, of my friends and family. I've had loved ones I know got sick with COVID and worried about that. Um, I've read reports on um, everything you know, on Twitter that we all have re read and, and sort of spiraled many days. I had a friend get a cancer diagnosis. And to be honest with you, there were times, many times, when I sort of prayed and said, God, there has to be a light at the end of this. Like, this is just too much, too hard. And it was during one of those really difficult times when uh, I remembered this quote that I had read many years uh, ago uh, by a woman named Julian of Norwich. Now, Julian is a 15th century, 14th century um, Christian mystic. Uh, she was uh, a devout woman and um, she had a near-death experience um, and actually she had prayed for a near-death experience she said I want to, God I want to get sick because I want to uh, I want to suffer um, alongside those who are suffering but I don't want to die and so she had this near-death experience and in that experience she had a vision um, of Jesus and she writes down in this book um, called the book of revelations of divine love the story of this vision in a conversation that she supposedly had with Jesus. And in this, among many other things, at one point Julian asked Jesus, she says, where is the hope and peace in our particular trials and in the trials that entangle the world? And Jesus' response to her is simply, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. Now I have no idea if Jesus really appeared to her or if it was just a neurons firing in her brain at a sort of a near-death experience, I don't know. But I do know deep within myself that what Jesus tells her is true. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not for the rest of this year, but all shall be well. And until then, when I'm living in the midst of the darkness, all I can do is hold on to the same hope that Simeon held on to, to the same hope that Anna held on to, that God is faithful to his promises. I don't think hope is about blind faith. Hope is about believing that there is something more true than the current pres present situation that we find ourselves in, than the darkness that we find ourselves in. That there really is a God more desperately um, in love with the world than anything out there that wants to stop it. There's a God who wants to fix all that is broken in this world and a God who ultimately will make all manner of thing well. And until then, 
My job is to not let the darkness get the best of me, to be faithful to what God has called me to, and to hope that like Simeon, Anna, and maybe Julian, I too may one day see Jesus face to face. As the great philosopher Albus Dumbledore said to Harry Potter, happiness can be found in the darkest of times if only one remembers to turn on the light. So I want to leave you with three questions. Have you considered that there is light even in the darkest moments of our lives? Have you considered that Jesus really is the hope of the world? And have you considered what it might look like to embody hope this semester? Have a good night, y'all.